Welcome to the Keos Podcast, a series dedicated to bringing you the best claims and legal insight. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to the second in a series of podcasts put on by the Keos Brain Injury Special Interest Group. Um, today, we are talking about the initial steps to take in a traumatic brain injury claim. Uh, you're hearing today from me, Libby Ferry, who is a partner in Keo's Bolton office, and also Miles Govan, who is a trainee in our Southampton office. And I think shortly to qualify, is that right, Miles? Yes, June this year, I'm due to qualify. Ah, not long now. Has not it been long. a long road? It's flown by, to be honest with you. But it's, yeah, it's about a combination of about 10 years worth of work. But um, no, it's definitely, I'm looking forward to getting that practicing certificate for sure. Absolutely. Well, so you're hearing from uh, different ends of the spectrum in terms of initial steps in a TBI claim, which is probably quite useful today then. Mm. Um, I'll kick it off and then we can get chatting. So I was thinking about this before we started. And I think the first thing I do when I'm faced with a traumatic brain injury claim is actually try and get some information on the mechanics of the accident. That is notwithstanding whether there's liability dispute or not, because um, the person who was involved in the accident with the injured party or who witnessed it or who was driving the other car, etc., will have the earliest sort of version of events as to how the accident happened and how the claimant was in the immediate aftermath. Um, I don't know whether you do that, Miles, on your cases. No, that's some, that's a, an interesting point. Actually, that's something I hadn't thought of because, like I say, we often get these cases sometimes two or three years post accident, and it's when it's clear cut liability case, it's often the attention, arguably rightly, switches to sort of your rehab and things like that, which we'll speak yeah. about. So it was actually quite useful, especially in a brain injury case, to understand, like you say, with regards to you know any loss of consciousness or anything like that, getting a first hand event as soon account of events as soon as you can post accident to really sort of help you. Um, yeah but down the line yeah no I think it's really helpful because um often if there is definitely loss of consciousness the paramedics might pick it up but if they're if they're only unconscious for a short while it might be just that person that gets out of the car to go and check if they're okay who knows whether that happened and also it's things like we often see claimants um suggesting they can't remember the accident at all but if they got out of the car run over to the person and had a go at them and explain to them why they were at fault for the accident in the immediate aftermath then they do remember the accident that memory is laid down and we can have that in a witness statement so it helps equally I've had experts ask me for exactly how the accident happened so they can assess you know whether there's been rotation whether there's been a bang to the head and in what sort of speed impact and things like that so anything you can gather from those eyewitnesses um, is really helpful. Well, yeah, especially if, and often if you speak to an insured, obviously it would be one of the first ports of call as a witness. They might even have photos and things like that as well. I've had yeah. a couple of cases where they've gone, oh, yeah, my car was wrecked. Here's a picture and you can quite clearly see, a, you know, a dent in the A-frame, a bullseye on the windscreen, scrape marks on the top of the car, something like that, that even the pictures can speak a thousand words, even if it's yeah. not the witness statement that's most helpful with regards to. We've even had a couple, actually, where you can see the insured, the, the claimant in the background, which sometimes yeah. helps as well. It so, is helpful, yeah. So yeah. Really, it's really useful. And you won't remember this, awesome. Miles, but the, the, uh, now we've all got phones um, which have cameras. That was helpful. I I started practicing before that was a thing, really. So um, the, not everybody had a phone on their camera. Uh, sorry, a camera on their phone, I should say. So uh, now that most people do take photos, don't they? Because they're always charting their entire lives. So you do end up getting that information straight from the insured if you can, which is great. Especially when there seems to be CCTV everywhere, you find, but no one, nothing ever seems to capture the accident, which is always, always <laughs> seems to be the case in these cases. And you make inquiries. Definitely, just that patch where the accident happened is a is a black spot. Yeah, no, I quite agree. Exactly. So after that, then, what's your next step? 
Um, and usually when I take conduct of a new claim after I've had that and sort of result, um, looked at liability and things, the first thing I'd do would be us would definitely trying to get holds of records early on. Um, as many as you can, as soon as you can, even if there's liability dispute going on. I mean, obviously there's an obligation of the pre-action protocol for disclosure in these cases as well. But the main records I'd be looking for would be hospital ambulance records, yeah. sorry, hospital or ambulance records, medical records. I'd be asking for pre and post-accident as well, because if you're going to get them all, you may as well get them. Um, yeah. And then once you've got hold of those records as well, it start to be sort of looking for looking start looking for you what we call the red flags, won't we? I suppose in regards to any signposting towards a brain injury. So you're like we said before, sort of any loss of consciousness, any post traumatic amnesia reported. Um, what's there's any reports of the Glasgow Coma Score in particular in the ambulance records? They'll often record that quite quickly. The paramedics. Yeah. Um, I think it's also important as well um, to check what medication was given at the scene, which would impact amnesia because some of the severe medication that you would quite rightly get after a horrible accident um, can actually cause you to have memory gaps as well. So all that's probably in the paramedics records. And it should be also in the hospital records. So I agree, you need to be picking all that up as quickly as possible on a traumatic brain injury claim. But also on records, you mentioned pre-accident ones as well. Yeah. You know, in brain injuries particularly, people react really differently to a brain injury and it may be because of what's going on in their backgrounds and what's happened before and a lot of the things we see could be psychiatrically mediated so we really want a thorough and forensic review of the records to establish that what that claimant was like at the point of accident and prior to the accident as well don't we yeah and i also think there's other things you can be looking at as well which are quite useful in, in the context of sort of so you, you can always have one eye on causation when you're looking at a lot of these records yeah. of the accident pre and post is there any pre-existing issues that might be exacerbated or mistaken in some cases for for symptoms of a brain injury is there any suggestion of conneg where they're wearing their seat belt cyclists yeah, wearing a helmet really high helmets those sorts of things but even a protective clothing all sorts of little bits of information that getting hold of them now can help in the later stages and all the things that we're going to talk about in a minute yeah, and on that helmets and uh, point, actually, that's always really helpful because obviously sometimes these brain injury claims are really expensive. And if there is any sort of contrib point we can bring about failure to wear helmets, um, you want you want to know about it as early as you can, don't you? So I agree. That's the sort of thing you need to be looking for for a brain injury case as well. Were they wearing a helmet? What was the state of the helmet afterwards? Um, were they just not wearing one? Um, we'd expect to be wearing one if it was a motorbike, wouldn't we? But often when it's a bicycle, not so much in my experience, despite the fact that it's probably a good idea to be wearing one. Yeah, and, and seatbelt usage, if there's any reference to that yeah. as well. I've, I've worked on a couple of cases with quite severe brain injuries where there's been quite a significant significant contribution negligence finding for the claimant failing to wear a seatbelt. Um, all of that sort of picked up in, in from the medical records. So it can, make, like you say, it can have a huge implication on the quantum of a case if, they, if there's suggestions of that early on. Yeah, agreed. Um, I'm also, it's a bit related to records but radiology is really important in brain injury cases what you'll tend to find is that you might ask and get access if you're lucky to the records early on but they don't necessarily always send you the radiology because you need to ask a different department it needs to come in a different format etc but if there's been any scanning and if there's a brain injury claim you would like to think that someone at the hospital maybe has picked this up you want that radiology and you want any up-to-date radiology as well so definitely um, in brain injury claims you need to be um, checking if there's been any scans and seeking your MRI scans or your um, CT scans or if there's been any more advanced ones as well. Yeah it's probably also in, on that point as well quite important to remember that just because there isn't necessarily a, a brain injury on those radiology reports and things like that doesn't unfortunately mean that you're out of the woods there's obviously other other 
elements that you want to consider but it's helpful to at least rule out right is it your sort of blunt force or trauma or shearing type or is it more of a shearing type brain injury is it a DAI or something like that so getting hold of those radiology reports at least can start to rule out um multiple possibilities and sort of help you and your experts um yeah focus in on what the issues are or in fact rule it in you know in, yeah. in this in this game if there is one if there is a brain injury and it is going to be quite severe and it can rule it in let's find out early on because it's helpful yeah. isn't it to everybody that we reserve things correctly and you know whilst i'd always prefer uh, not to find evidence of a really serious brain injury on scanning if there is there at least we know that we've got some objective evidence of that and we can deal with it accordingly can't we yeah it can help shape the approach to rehab can't it as well if you know you've got a serious brain injury let, let's let's deal with it properly and that nicely brings us on to the next point i was thinking about because i think rehab in brain injury cases is something you need to think about early on what do yeah. you think yeah so i think that i think there's some real benefits early on in these brain injury cases to get in some rehab or at least some joint instruction sort of early uh, rehab under the code in these brain injury cases especially like we said before where it's if you get the radiology or your records back and it's quite clearly quite a bad brain injury there's definitely some benefits to be had both for the claimant and for and for the defendant in front loading that rehab especially yeah. when with brain injuries you often find that the the symptoms don't necessarily show themselves straight away they can often sort of be six to eight months down the line you start hearing a functional problem so i definitely yeah. think there's a benefit to that yeah that often happens when there's other injuries as well whereas the pain from the orthopedic injuries for example is the mm. thing they're focusing on and actually seven months down the line you realize they've got cognitive deficits as well so i totally agree and also i think the reason why if you're going to undertake rehab in brain injury claims, you want to do it as early as possible. Is there's quite a lot of evidence from the experts that you've got two years to mm, yeah. do something with the rehab on a brain injured patient, and after that point, any gains are going to be quite small. So, if you're going to involve yourself, the earlier you involve yourself, the better, and to get the claimant back to as good a place they can be in terms of independence and managing life, if they're the sort of things that have got problem with. Um, I would say even if liabilities in dispute i think an ina is still a good idea even if you on yeah. a without prejudice basis it's gives you a bit more insight into what's going on it gives you a better idea of how to value the claim even if you're denying liability um and also it may be that you decide that some of the things they're suggesting are worth it even with a liability dispute on a without prejudice basis just to get them back into a better position if ultimately once you've investigated liability um you know it's something that you're going to end up paying something towards well yeah and it's important obviously to remember there's a person on the other side of it as well when you're having the rehab so that they you know whilst the the lawyers are arguing about liability there's no reason why they should suffer like you say they're going to get something under the they'll you know will end up paying something for it anyway if it's going to be some benefit to them on the flip yeah. side of that as well is it's quite useful in the rehab to have an inside line with regards to an ina and, and, and a joint instructor case manager to also say no to the right things as well yeah I think we often see in these cases where you'll get a full package recommended in an INA where, especially with someone where it's a you know, minor or a moderate brain injury, it's not necessarily so severe that that's what you call them the walking wounded type cases. But we can often see in these cases where too much is done for the claimant, they become yeah. quite dependent. So it's quite yeah. important as, as the defendant to be able to sort of act as a, um, you know, a screen to some degree um, yeah. with regards to what they shouldn't, you know, what should and shouldn't be provided. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And uh, it's really hard if you don't, 
sort of get these cases from our point of view sometimes till actual issue of proceedings and there's been all these sort of care provision and packages put in place that ultimately maybe our experts say aren't to do with a brain injury or to do with something else to unpick a package is much harder than to not agree to it in the first place or to manage it better so I completely agree um it is about managing the claim and managing the case manager a little bit not every claimant sister likes us doing that and we'll try and keep us out of it but often they need the money and they need the funding so there is a negotiation tool there we can get involved we can have our say because we're funding it on the defendant side so we need to utilize that to its maximum benefit on the brain injury cases i agree yeah, I think with, and I'll say just last point on the rehab is getting that eye in as well can also help with the previous point we made with regards to causation and um, give you an insight into what they're perhaps like pre-accident, the sort of pre- yeah. pre-accident level, what we're we trying to get them back to, what is their ceiling going to be, those sorts of things that are all points that will come in when we speak about experts in a moment and valuations that are all important factors with regards to these brain injury cases. Yeah, agreed. Um, talking about experts, uh, I think it's with all uh, high value claims the experts are quite hard to get hold of but particularly the brain injury lot um yeah. there's only certain experts probably that we like to use we do try keep trying to um increase those experts don't we but the neurologists the neuroradiologists the neuropsychiatrists the neuropsychologists their waiting lists now are epic aren't they they are 18 months two years sometimes yeah. so I think the top tip before we start talking about each individual one is that you really need to get them reserved almost as soon as you know there's going to be a brain injury element to your case. And even if you've not got an appointment, you want to be on the list. Yeah, I've got a couple of cases at the minute where even though we're on the list, I think I'm currently 42nd on someone's <laughs> waiting list. Even then, they're not booking for the next, like I say, 12 to 18 months. So it yeah. really is important before um, just to get, like you say, get these experts. If it's a red flag, there's a brain injury, get your, your neuro experts on board, those four that you mentioned as, um, as soon as you can. Because you can always yeah. release them if you don't need them. Absolutely. And often a colleague will need that that appointment anyway. So sometimes you can do a deal. So I I, <laughs> I absolutely think um, that's the most important, one of the most important things to do when you get a brain injury claim. You make sure you've got the right sort of experts lined up and make sure that they, um, you know, you know that you're going to be able to have one. And ultimately, you might think this is ridiculous booking an appointment for 18 months, two years time. But actually, if you think about the slowness of rehab and the slowness of how people get to point of issue, it might fit really nicely. Or it might be that you manage to then resolve the matter before you litigate because you've got your expert evidence. You can have a an early negotiation before litigation occurs if you've got your expert evidence in early. Yeah, and, and like I say, alternative to that, I think you're going to be able to get any kind of resolution without your expert evidence. A lot of claimant solicitors won't come to the table until you've been able to serve some of your evidence, even on a, on a without prejudice basis to sort of give the, the range of evaluation on these types of cases. Yeah, certainly your core experts, they won't yeah, because they'll, they'll fear negligence claims, won't they, if they undersettle um, yeah. claims without having the proper input, which, you know, is fair enough. And that's the core ones. But obviously, there are other experts you need to be thinking about in brain injury. So you often need a care OT expert because if there's any sort of level of um, inability to deal with, you know, usual aspects of daily life that would need some sort of support, be it support worker, rehab assistant, care package, etc. You'll need some comment on that from an expert. So they are someone I always probably reserve right out the the, the uh, stables as well. Um, what else do you have on your list to reserve? 
Yeah, it kind of, so it kind of goes on a case by case basis. Care, I definitely think so, especially with the way care rates are going at the moment, and that can often, quite often, is the most expensive part of these brain injury packages uh, cases is the package of care requirement. Yeah. Um, I've on other brain injury cases, I tend to sort of go. You might need a neuro rehab expert, depending yeah. on the severity of injury. Maybe a physio if there's some quite bad nerve injuries or things like that um i've also maybe a transport or accommodation expert yeah. as well but that really depends on the, on the severity of of the you know of the brain injury themselves um but i'd say um, at least at least get those four core and then react yeah you need to you need to react to experts a lot of the time yeah like the other two i sometimes use depending on what's come through from the records is speech and language yeah. um therapist potentially or um audio vestibular if there's some sort of suggestion that there's an audio vestibular element there's also ophthalmology etc because obviously brain injuries can affect your sight affect your hearing affect your sense of um taste but that is something you need to try and pick up from the ina if you've got one or yeah. the records if you've got them and and reserve accordingly some of those experts have slightly shorter waiting lists <laughs> it's the well, ones you... with neuro at the beginning that are the worst in my experience yeah, and you've obviously also got to react to what's what's pleaded by the claimants listers as well. You might see other experts that are, are requested, which again feeds back into why it's so important to get all the previous steps we've mentioned so you can decide whether that, that sort of type of input is warranted in these cases as well. So be yeah, outside the big four, it definitely is reactive on a case to case by case basis, I think. Yeah. I think the only thing I want to mention a, a apart from all of that we've talked about is valuations really um, and just to highlight that traumatic brain injury claims can be extremely high value they can also be pretty reasonable as well but you need to have um, managed expectations on where we could be heading and make sure that you from a lawyer's point of view your valuations are um, considering where things might go and from you know a claims handler's point of view insurers that the reserves are adequate and that you keep looking at it because it changes quite a lot from initial you know if you're looking at a day one reserve um you could be thinking oh well they're going to get better and they're going to be in six months they're going to be a totally different position but they don't always no. and we need to make sure we manage that situation really carefully yeah it's definitely something it's a it's a moving target like I said, something you need to be revisiting especially especially once you've got your expert the first few expert reports in is definitely something that you need to be revisiting going right how are they what's the condition what's the prognosis how much are we gonna you know how much more does is the reserve too high is it too low um, yeah because often when you first reserve it is a sort of a finger in the air exercise based on what information you've got which is why it's so important to get those records in early it is. And, if, and your experts, you know, if you've, if you've managed to get early appointments, for example, it's not always possible. They they might not be able to um, finalise their opinions. But if you get them in conference, then quite often very experienced experts will give you a feel for where they think this claim's going, which can then help inform that valuation as well. So it, it's it's more information, the better, really, isn't it, in this, yeah. these sort of cases? Absolutely. Lovely. Well, I think that's um, all we've got for you today. Um, I hope that's been helpful. If you'd like to get in touch with any of the points we've discussed today, you can either email Miles or myself. Um, our details are in the episode description on whatever platform you're using. I am reliably informed. Um, and then make sure to tune into the next one, which is um, Martin McKenna and myself discussing Glasgow Coma Scale and the Mayo classification in traumatic brain injury claims. So thanks, Miles. And thanks, everybody, for listening. Great. Thanks, Libby.